There you go. Four punch, five punch, six punch combination. Body shot, body shot. Bang, 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 bang. Telling him not to counter punch. Welcome back, Fight Fans. This is episode 27 of the Fight City Podcast. Joined tonight by Seamus McNally of stiffjab.com. How are you tonight, Seamus? Good. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, absolutely. So uh last night, wow, must much better. And I'm very, very happy to be proven wrong because I was a adamant critic of the level of action that I thought this fight would have produced. But uh, terrific fight, terrific performance by both men, especially Manny Pacquiao. He gets the split decision victory over 14,000 at the MGM Grand. What was your overall impression to the fight and how did you score it? Um, I had it eight rounds before for Pacquiao. I mean, and it was it was a vintage performance from him. I mean, it wasn't exactly, you know, circa 2008 but um it was probably the best he's looked in a very long time probably since the last time he beat tim bradley um i unlike you i did expect it to be an action-packed fight but um i was <laughs> but like you i was surprised at how well pacquiao performed um he dealt with the style of thurman better than i expected um he was able to showcase his foot speed and his hand speed you know unlike a 40 year old i mean he you would think he was the one that was 30 years old in that fight. Um, you know, Thurman yeah. was 10 years younger, and he was much better with his hand you know, hand speed, his foot speed, and he knocked Thurman down for the first time and gave him his first loss. Yeah, absolutely. That Right in the beginning, it was stunning uh, how much of a factor his speed and power were in the fight. Uh, I think the first round knockdown stunned everybody. I don't think people expected uh, a knockdown that early. There was really no feeling out period. Uh, but from Pacquiao's side, you know, as Tim Bradley says, he was extremely effective at closing the distance quickly. It's, it's stunning at age 40 that he still has the raw athleticism to do that. And, um, to Thurman's credit, when he was able to anticipate Pacquiao's rushes, that step back counter was effective for him. I thought he carried several of the middle to late rounds by timing Pacquiao beautifully and, and countering him while Pacquiao was off balance off a miss. Uh, but ultimately, it was Pacquiao's activity versus Thurman's accuracy. And Pacquiao threw more than 100 punches more, despite Thurman landing 15 punches more. Uh, what was your biggest surprise of last night? Um, that, you know, when obviously Pacquiao dominated the early rounds and, you know, probably around the fourth, fifth round, it was looking like it was going to be, you know, a whitewash and, you know, a mid-round stoppage. But I was impressed that Thurman was able to, you know, control the middle rounds, make some adjustments. But w w the biggest surprise was that Pacquiao was able to, you know, adjust again to yeah. his adjustment. You know, at 40 years old, once Thurman started to, you know, win some of the middle rounds, like, okay, maybe his age is starting to show and Thurman's going to, you know, show the old, the old lion what's, you know, he shouldn't be in the game anymore. And I thought maybe Thurman was going to start taking over and then Pacquiao adjusted back. And, you know, won the late rounds and ultimately won the fight. So I was very impressed. Obviously, Pacquiao's been in with everybody. So obviously, I would never question his ring IQ, but just from a physical standpoint that he was able to weather the, weather the storm, weather the rally from Thurman and come back and uh, win the fight. 
Yeah, I think that's a steady theme in Pacquiao's career is just the will of Pacquiao. He really never let Thurman carry the momentum of the fight. Every time Thurman had one of his best rounds, Pacquiao would be right back at him in the next round and would make sure he lost that next round. A couple of the major shortcomings I noted that have held Thurman back, especially in this fight and in the past, uh, he tends to get himself in trouble while he's moving outside of punching range. He has this bad habit of squaring up, and it hurt him in the seventh round against Jose Cito Lopez, and it definitely hurt him in the first round against Pacquiao. Um, And it's something that I don't know why Dan Birmingham hasn't responded to and has noticed and corrected, because Thurman often gets himself in no no man's land and uh, ends up doing himself a lot more harm than good. Yeah, he pulls straight back, you know, with his hands down. You know, you would think if he's trying to get out of the way that he would also have his hands up to prevent from getting yeah. countered, caught going backwards. Um, but then obviously, you know, he doesn't like it to the body. You know, that's where he was hurt oh, yeah. by Sean Porter, by and Jose Zita Lopez, as you mentioned, in that seventh round. And then also Louis Colazzo. And then yep. obviously in the 10th round, which honestly kind of sealed the fight for Pacquiao, was, you know, that really swung the momentum back in his favor. You know, credit to Thurman, he didn't go down, but he was badly, badly hurt in that round. And Pacquiao, you know, was able to take advantage of Thurman, like you said, in the first round, pull him back. And then in the 10th round, he halted the momentum, hurt him, and then, you know, finished off the last two rounds. Yeah, and Thurman was coming off one of his best rounds of the fight in the ninth round. And then the 10th round, that body shot just kind of stopped him in his tracks. Uh, it's it's strange for an elite level fighter like Thurman to react so transparently to body punches. I mean, he is hobbling around the ring as we saw against Louis Colazzo, uh the first time he was notably hurt to the body that I can recall against Pacquiao. Uh, it completely, you know, sways the the uh, perspective that the fans and the judges have when a guy is that notably hurt um, as Thurman was. Uh, but credit to him, he made it out of that round. He uh, fought back bravely and competitively in the last two, and Pacquiao ended up sealing the deal. Uh, so where do you rank this victory amongst Pacquiao's greatest accomplishments? I mean, we've seen a lot of a lot of noise on social media that this elevates him to all-time great status, greater than he was before. Uh, where do you uh, stand in terms of your reaction to this win? I mean, obviously, he's had incredible wins throughout his career, you know, from Marquez, uh, Cotto, Hatton, um, Morales, you know, all those guys. Yeah. But, you know, granted, the cir- you know, given the circumstances that he's no longer in his prime and he beat an undefeated champion who was previously the unified champion before his, you know, almost two years out of the ring, but still yeah. undefeated, 10 years younger, definitely in his top five all-time wins. And it definitely adds a big notch to Pacquiao's already amazing resume. And even though he was already in rarefied air, it just adds, keeps adding to his legacy for sure. Um, definitely one of the best wins of his career. Like I said, it was vintage Pacquiao. I'm um, obviously didn't get the stoppage, but you know, it's, it, it looked like he was, you know, he turned back the clock for the night. And he did it against a very good version of Keith Thurman. I thought despite the loss, Thurman looked just as good as he had, uh, prior to the injury, I, I thought he did a lot of justice to himself with that performance and his his uh, humility in taking the loss. Absolutely, um, definitely. But um, so after the fight, I was thinking to myself because I did uh, pick against Pacquiao that I probably wouldn't 
want to pick against Pacquiao too much in the future, but then you consider Terrence Crawford and Earl Spence. Uh, where do you think Pacquiao will find himself against the likes of Crawford or more realistically Earl Spence? Well, I mean, there's a reason that they've, when, you know, Pacquiao was on the other side of the street with top rank, you know, along with Crawford, there's a reason they avoided him. Um, obviously, yeah. Thur I think they, they felt Thurman was right for the picking coming off, you know, the sustained layoff and then not looking so great against Lopez. You know, it turned out their yep. gamble was correct. Um, I agree with you. Thurman looked better than ever before, or, you know, that he did against Lopez, but you know, Pacquiao definitely made a correct gamble with taking that fight, but you know, Spence Pacquiao's really a lightweight. I mean, to be honest with you, he, he like, I heard he eats a steak, you know, the break, you know, the morning of the weigh in, like he does, he doesn't really cut weight to 40, you know, 47. He walks yeah. around probably even less than that, you know, and Spence is really, a huge junior or welterweight, very soon to be a junior middleweight, in my opinion. And I think he would be too much for Pacquiao as well. Mm -hmm. um, so more than likely, I believe he will be taking on Danny Garcia next, who was originally, you know, supposed to fight Mikey Garcia, but that fight kind of fell, fell apart. Um, so I think that'll probably be the next fight because I think, you know, Spence Porter going on September 28th, they won't probably fight again till next spring, next early summer, maybe. So I could see Pacquiao taking on Danny Garcia, I don't know, February, March, somewhere around there. Yep, he said he uh, doesn't expect to fight the remainder of this year. He obviously has many senatorial duties to attend to outside the ring, but definitely an interesting move for the welterweight division, which was red hot going into this fight. And you know, now I think after two good performances by both Pacquiao and Thurman, I think uh, it just got that much more interesting. So the yeah. undercard of Pacquiao, Thurman. Oh. Keep going. I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, I was going to say, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, Thurman was obviously the favorite in this fight, but it definitely adds a whole other dynamic to the division. You know, Pacquiao was the legend, but I don't think anybody really considered him a serious contender, a serious threat to the top dogs in the division. You know, after but after this fight, um, you know, I could see him. I could see the you know Thurman fighting the loser of. Spence Porter, you know, um, and then the winner obviously fighting the winner of maybe Garcia and Pacquiao, you know, in the summer or n later next year. Um, sorry about that, but go on to the undercard. Oh, no, no worries. So um, also on the undercard, we had uh, another welterweight contender, Jordanis Ugas, completely dominating Omar Figueroa, winning via unanimous shutout. Uh, Figueroa didn't look very prepared, stated after that or stated before rather that he trained himself for the fight. Uh, definitely hasn't had the best career trajectory since his inactivity following his DUI in early 2018. Uh, what did you make of the performance? Was it more Ugas than it was uh, what Figueroa didn't bring to the ring? Or uh, how did you take that? Um, Ugas is definitely a top contender, as we saw. You know, a lot of people thought he beat Sean Porter, myself included. Um, he kind of came out of nowhere in the last couple of years. Uh, Figueroa, although he was undefeated, um, his past days were behind him. His best days were at lightweight, you know, and then he's had trouble making weight. As you mentioned, he's had trouble outside the ring. So now he's kind of just a blown-up lightweight fighting at welterweight. Um, so it was just kind of mm -hmm. – because of good matchmaking, he, his uh, undefeated record was still intact. But uh, I expected Ugas to take care of business, and he did. Um, I think it puts him right back in the thick of things. At 147, I could like again. I could see him maybe fighting the loser of Spence Porter, um, or maybe even the winner if Pacquiao goes and fights Garcia. I could see Spence fighting Ugas. 
Um, you know, there's a whole a lot of different matches you can make on the PB side of the welterweight landscape. Uh, as for Figueroa, um, now that he's lost his undefeated record, I mean, he wasn't really considered a top contender at 147 anyway. But, you know, there's a lot of fights you can make for him um, in the division. Uh, but I don't see him ever reaching the pinnacle at, at that weight. Um, maybe he could find a way to get back down to 140. Could be some more interesting fights for him down there. Maybe Sergey Lipinets. I don't know. Um, but I don't see him ever reaching the upper echelon at 147. As for Ugas, I hope to see him get another big fight. Uh, maybe a rematch with Porter. Um, but he's definitely, he's definitely right up there. He may not be the biggest name, but he's, he's got elite talent. Definitely. I think the loss might serve as a wake-up call for Figueroa, who's, as you mentioned, definitely fighting outside of his best weight. Uh, clearly didn't look uh, like a full-fledged welterweight in there. and uh, But he does have the ability to possibly become a factor at 140 if he takes a different trajectory in his career. Uh, also on the undercard, we had a battle of former bantamweight champions with Louis Neary's devastating body shot knockout of Juan Carlos Payano, who was two fights... Uh, two fights following his knockout loss to Naoya in a way. Uh, what did you make of Neri's knockout win over Payano? Uh, again, it, I felt it was expected. Um, you know, Payano kind of, uh, he's a good fighter, but I think it was more of a showcase for Neri. Um, yeah. You know, again, he's had some troubles making weight in the past. Um, and now he's seems to got his self together and, back at uh, his right weight class and you know he's still undefeated with a great knockout percentage and I'd love to see him fight the winner of the World Boxing Super Series uh, in a way and Donaire I think that would be an incredible fight and prove who is the top at the Bantamweight division. Um, as for Payano you know he's still a solid contender you know could be a gatekeeper for you know young prospects on the rise or uh, just in other fun fights but I again I in a way, is a pound-for-pound pound great. Um, so, you know, he's obviously the top dog. But Neri, I think, would give him his best fight of his career by far. You know, uh, in a way, he's blown away everybody. But I think Neri could really give him a run for his money. Um, and that would definitely be a really good fight for uh, Bantamweight supremacy. Yeah, definitely. Now, I give Payano a lot of credit for the way he fought. He, he definitely didn't fight like a guy who was coming off a devastating knockout loss. He was in against Neri, another big puncher, probably the second biggest puncher at 118. And he took the fight to him, took a lot of big punches, and uh, gave a lot back. Lasted a lot longer than I expected, and probably many others did. But uh, seems like his best days are over. I mean, it's kind of hard to rebound from two devastating knockouts like that, especially a body shot knockout. Almost looked like he broke a rib against Neri. <laughs> he uh, stayed on the deck a lot longer than a lot of fighters who've been knocked out to the body that I recall in recent years. Yeah, it was a good shot. Um, much credit to Payana for sticking in there as long as he did. Uh, like I said, he's a solid fighter. Um, just a notch, just one level below the elite at Bantamweight. But uh, yeah, great shot by Neri to the body. So Caleb Plant made quick of Mike Lee in the first defense of his IBF Super Middleweight Championship, stopped him in three rounds. Clearly, there's a 168-pound PBC trifecta developing. Got Anthony Durrell, you got David Benavidez, you have, um, obviously, Caleb Plant. Uh, the best of which will likely go up against Callum Smith at some point in the future, hopefully, and unify the division. Uh, who do you think will come out on top? Um, I think... I would take Benavidez over Plant. Um, definitely, I think uh, Benavidez is going to beat Darrell, and then I think he will also end up beating Plant. Although Plant looked very good Saturday night, you know. Granted, Mike Lee, 
Mike Lee should have never gotten a title fight. He <laughs> had only previously fought at one, you know, cruiserweight or one seventy five. So he had never even fought at one sixty eight before, and his competition was uh, very limited. It was really just you know him having the noted, you know, the the notable name from the subway commercials, being the Notre Dame grad, being undefeated. That's really what got him the title shot. It was a showcase fight for Plant, and uh, he sh- he showed that he was a level above Mike Lee. Um, I do believe. Benavides will smoke Darrell, and then I think the fight against Plant will be a very, very close fight. But I do think Benavides will come out on top. I just think he's too powerful, too strong. And then I really don't have a high hopes for the Callum Smith fight to get done, just because he's you know on the other side of the street with Dizone and Eddie Hearn and Matchroom. And then also he's just a huge 168er. I I don't see him being a 168 much longer. Maybe if he doesn't get the Canelo fight, I could see him, or he doesn't get Billy Joe Saunders or Chris Ubank. Um, I could see him moving up to 175 and fighting uh, Gilberto Ramirez or somebody along those lines. Yeah, besides Canelo, Callum Smith's in a tough position at super middleweight because clearly Eddie Hearn and Frank Warren don't easily do business together. So the Saunders fight and Chris Eubank Jr. might not be easy to make. PBC, uh, they like to stay within house typically, uh, and they definitely have the capacity to do that with Durrell, Benavidez, and Plant. So, yeah, as you said, Callum Smith might be best off going up to 175 at some point. And he's six foot three. You know, he definitely has the frame to do that. Uh, but he has crazy potential, I think. I think he's a very talented fighter. And hopefully, if there's some way that the stars can align, you know, I'd love to see him fight a David Benavidez or uh, a Billy Joe Saunders. I think that'd be great for his career. Yeah, I think, you know, any there's a lot of intriguing fights at 168 for him. Obviously, the two domestic fights with Eubank and Saunders would be huge. And then, I know, from getting his name out on the American side more, obviously, whoever comes out between Plant, Benavides, and Durrell would be a big fight for him. Um, yeah, I just see end up I see him ending up at 175 very shortly. Um, even actually on DAZN, there's not a whole lot for him. Uh, Bivol, I believe, is a free agent, even though he has fought, on, fought with DAZN. Um, mm-hmm. you know, most of the top light heavyweights are top rank and, you know, there's a great fight coming up between better BF and Kvostik. I could, you know, yeah. hopefully somehow, you know, Bob Aaron seems to, and seems to work well with Eddie Hearn. Um, obviously Lomachenko mm-hmm. Cola was just announced. So, um, I could see potentially, uh, Callum Smith fighting the winner of better BF and Kvostik. You know, it's, it's a big money fight in the UK. Um, I could see that happening. Um, you know, much like Lomachenko fighting Krola and Usyk fighting Bellew having, you know, the Ukrainian champion coming over to the UK and fight their biggest star is intriguing, to say the least. Definitely. So, come out of the 168-pound division, we have David Benavidez going up against Anthony Durrell on the Spence Porter undercard September 28th. Should be shaping up to be a terrific pay-per-view card. Uh, on the East Coast of this weekend, we had Teofima Lopez struggling to win a unanimous decision decision in a fight that I thought was much closer than the scorecards indicated. I mean, we had 118, 110, 119, 109 type scores. I had it 116, 112 for Lopez. What were your takes on his performance? Um, you know, I agree with you. I thought it was close on the scorecards, but as we all know, the politically uh, more connected fighter usually gets the benefit of the doubts on the cards. Um, yeah. I believe it was more just, you know, styles make fights and it's, it was a difficult style for him, and I think it was a good good learning lesson for him. You know, the Nakatani was, you know, a huge lightweight, and Lopez mm-hmm. is a counterpuncher who likes to, you know, box on the outside and catch people coming in. Well, that usually works well against either short fighters or guys who are tall but are undisciplined. Well, Nakatani was 
tall and also very disciplined staying on the outside. So, you know, obviously boxing is a what have you done for me lately sport. And Lopez has, you know, scored some incredible knockouts recently. So without people knowing much about Nakatani, they just kind of expected the same. But, um, you know, I think in the long run, it's going to be great for Lopez to have that kind of fight. It'll prepare him well for Richard Comey. And then um, Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, Nakatani's not even close to the level of Lomachenko. But that being said, Lomachenko is very small for lightweight. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say he's not completely unready for Lomachenko because it would be a completely different kind of fight just because Lomachenko is little for his weight class and Lopez, that's kind of the guys he, you know, thrives on. But obviously Lomachenko is not just going to come in recklessly. He's an incredible boxer and it's hard to outbox him, obviously. Um, You know, um, but I definitely think he needs a little more seasoning before taking that challenge. I, I don't discredit him for not knocking Nakatani out. But I, it definitely showed he needs a little bit more seasoning for uh, Lomachenko. And despite his reputation built on a lot of his highlight reel knockouts, Bob Arum was satisfied with seeing his young man go 12 rounds. Um, I was impressed personally by Lope, uh, Lopez's ability to maintain his composure and poise through 12 rounds. I mean, you could tell things might not go his way in terms of a knockout, probably a little more than halfway through the fight. And nevertheless, Lopez didn't seem to be uh, desperately seeking the knockout out uh he seemed to be as i said very poised and composed he didn't fade down the stretch despite concerted effort by nakatani however uh there were definitely a few areas for improvement i I thought that he could have definitely diversified his defense he relied a little too much on the shoulder roll to defend against the straight right uh eventually nakatani kind of figured him out and tagged him frequently especially down the stretch with that right hand it's something that might be costly against a right hand puncher like comey uh, is that an area for concern, some of those defensive lapses that he showcased? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Bob Emmer's correct, and, you know, and I, I agree with you that it was a great sign that, you know, he's only 21 years old, and he's only had 14 fights that he showed the composer and poise, you know, of a veteran. You know, going 12 rounds, he never seemed to be out of breath. You know, he seemed to be in great shape, and uh, it went the distance, no problem. But, yeah, I agree. Um, he definitely needs to shore up some defensive issues with all those highlight knockouts that he's had probably really hasn't had to be too concerned with it, but you know, Comey's a big puncher. He definitely needs to you know, go with more of the high guard or get better head movement or, you know, get out of range more to uh, avoid those right hand punches as a, you know, everyone tries the, to be the Floyd Mayweather, you know, use the Philly shell yeah. shoulder roll, but uh, only a select few can really, you know, master that kind of defense. Um, and it takes a long time to get there. So he definitely should, look to use more conventional routes to, you know, shore up his defense. I know he's a flashy fighter. I understand that and it sells tickets, but if he doesn't want to get knocked out or hurt, you know, he probably should be a little more careful. And I think he will. I think he's smart. I think he has a growth mindset of wanting to get better. You know, he even said he wasn't satisfied with his performance. So uh, that was encouraging to hear. Um, and I, I think the fight against Comey would be really interesting and will tell us a lot about Lopez and whether he's ready for uh, Lomachenko. Definitely. Uh, well, speaking of knockouts, we had quite a highlight reel situation with Cassius Cheney knocking Joel Cottle out of the ring after a series of blows. Uh, it seemed like Cottle was just too heavy to get a grip on himself after getting offset by some of those punches. Yet, you know, he showed some balls casually walking back to the ring after tumbling out of it. Uh, <laughs> that was definitely quite a comedic moment on the MGM Grand National Harbor uh, event. On Friday night. Uh, 
Were you as shocked as everyone else? Well, as you know, I actually missed it. I was, you know, you and I were ringside for that fight, and <laughs> I took a bathroom break during that fight, unfortunately. Um, you know, that was probably the funniest moment. I did get to see the highlights as I, you know, came back to my seat, and obviously I've seen them on social media. Yeah, it was pretty funny. You don't see that very often, especially such a big man falling out of the ring. Um, I, you know, give him a lot of credit for getting back in there. I mean, he took a lot of shots beforehand, you know, that sent him out of the ring. But he, you know, he got back in there in no time and it took, it took a little bit more of a beating and uh, got, you know, saved by the ref. Uh, yeah, a lot of credit to him to get back in there. Yeah, you know, boxing is the theater of the unexpected and uh, we got another one that night for sure. It was pretty funny. Yep. <laughs> Not quite Dempsey Furpo in terms of level of uh, no. quality, uh, but <laughs> definitely very entertaining nonetheless. Uh, Dusty Harrison also made an appearance on Friday night. He made perhaps the most significant return uh, since his inactivity a couple years back against journeyman Juan de Angel. He controlled most of the fight behind his jab and ultimately ended matters in the seventh round with a straight right hand. And I thought he looked very strong at 160. And I think if he trims a little fat, he could easily make 154 and uh, maybe be a little steadier on his feet than he was at 147. What were your takes on his performance? Yeah, um, definitely it was good for him to get some rounds in. Um, you know, his previous two comeback, comeback fights, um, you know, the first one lasted a round, and the second one he stopped the guy, I believe, in the fourth round. Um, mm. But, yeah, but that was in that fight, um, which I attended. It was really the first time he even put any kind of pressure on the guy was when he got him out of there. So, you know, in the early part of the Deion Hale fight, he was kind of the same as his last fight, uh, which took place back in April. He kind of took his sweet time. You know, just trying to feel out, work his jab, get some rounds in. Um, but once he started putting the pressure on him, Deion Hill uh, did a good job sticking around for a little bit, uh, gave Dusty some rounds. Uh, yeah, you, I believe he's much stronger at 160 uh, than at 147. You know, he, he was killing himself at the end to make 147. Uh, he's a big, big welterweight. He, you know, he's easily can no problem being a junior middleweight and even a middleweight. I know this fight was at 160, but uh, I think the plan – what I was told is the next fight is to be at 154 for a regional title to get him back in the rankings. Uh, before he left, he was, you know, a top 15 welterweight in the IBF. Um, so it's good to see him back. You know, he took two years off because of, you know, multi multitude of issues. Um, definitely the most significant fight since he's, uh, since his return. And uh, it's good to see him back on the, uh, the right track. Uh, you know, he's got a gaudy record, you know, 33 and 0, yep. but um, he hasn't, hasn't really fought anybody yet. Um, no, no notable contenders. And, I don't know if he will ever uh, reach the world, the world title level. You know, there's some some great champions at 154, but uh, he can definitely make some noise. You know, as a contender and uh, getting some big fights. Definitely. Well, on the co-feature to Teofimo Lopez Nakatani, and I've uh, been hesitant to bring this up because it is such a terrible situation. We had Maxim Dadashev and Subriel Matias in a title eliminator for the IBF Junior Welterweight Championship. It was a very crowd-pleasing brawl throughout, terrific pace set by both men. Uh, but ultimately, Matias walked out of Chevron and won the war of attrition uh, before Buddy McGirt, Maxim's trainer, stopped the action going into the 12th round. Uh, but before the, uh, the, the finish and the gruesome aftermath that followed, what, would, uh, what was your takes of the fight and uh, Matias's performance? Um, it was a great fight. Um, you know, both guys had identical 13-0 records. Uh, I think, Met I believe Matias was 13-0 uh, yeah. with all the knockouts. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, the other guy, 
can't, I cannot say his name, Dadashev, right? Dadashev, yeah. Okay, just wanted to make sure I got that right. Uh, he had 11 knockouts, so uh, I expected to be a firefight. Uh, I did not expect it to go the distance or, you know, close to the distance. I expected one of them to get caught. Um, I didn't know who. You know, I thought it was an even fight, but I thought one of them was going to get caught, let's say, in the mid-rounds. But both of them showed sturdy chins. Um, early on, Dadashev, you know, was moving a little bit, which uh, made it hard for, you know, Matias to get him. But at one point, you know, he bit down on his mouthpiece and they, you know, they went to war and, you know, obviously Matias got the better of the exchanges. And then it, it really kind of got, as you mentioned, a little, little, little uneasy to watch, you know, in the later rounds, the, you know, ninth, 10th and 11th rounds. Uh, and then thankfully Buddy McGirt, uh, pulled the plug and, you know, potentially saved his life. Uh, I hear he's still in critical condition. Um, he underwent brain surgery to help reduce the swelling. Um, and uh, prayers up to his family and, you know, him, and I hope he makes a full recovery. Yeah, brain surgery to reduce swelling, also tend to a subdural hematoma, brain bleed. Uh, it's since been placed in a medically induced coma. And the scary thing is, is that he was winning rounds uh, in the late rounds. Up until the 11th round, the end of the 11th round, it didn't look like he was on the verge of being knocked out. Uh, which is truly frightening that a you know, fighter can get so close to death without showing clear signs. Yet Buddy McGirt really saved the man's life by acknowledging he was in no shape to continue and uh, threw in the towel before the 12th round started. Uh, but nonetheless, on social media, as, as to be expected, there's been a lot of criticism for the Maryland State Athletic Commission for a variety of reasons, ranging from having Maxim walk back to his dressing room, not on a stretcher, uh, to the doctor not inspecting closely enough between rounds. Are, are these well-founded in your opinion, or is this just another unfortunate grim reality of the sport? Um, in terms of the doctor checking on him in between rounds, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with that because, you know, like you said, it was, it was, it was in the fight. You know, I would say, the, you know, the 11th round, which was the last round that before my, Buddy McGirt pulled the plug, it, it definitely got a little uh, uneasy to watch, and you could tell he was – not doing too well. Um, but the round before, yeah. you know, I thought he won that round. Um, so in terms okay. of the doctor checking in between rounds, you know, it was, it was a brutal fight, but I wouldn't necessarily, you know, wouldn't agree with that. But in terms of uh, not getting him on the stretch right away, I 100% agree that that was wrong by the EMTs, the commission, whoever is in charge of uh, making sure that happens. Um, you know, and, you know, ESPN had the camera on him, like right there. Like, obviously, he wasn't doing well. Like they, they, I know they tried to rush him back to the dressing room by, you know, walking him, you know, it takes some time to, you know, uh -huh. get, the, get the stretcher on all that. But really he, they got, you know, they, they, he didn't even make it back to the dressing room. He, uh, before he even got back to the, the dressing room, he didn't even make it out of the arena before having to get put on the stretcher. But it's like, well, you know, he got 50 feet. You might as well just put him on the stretcher, you know, in the ring or right outside the ring. Um, you know, will I, do I think it would have necessarily made the biggest difference in terms of what happened? Probably not. But, you know, any – you never know for sure, and maybe it would have helped. Um, I, you know, the year – the crazy thing is is that, you know, his manager, Igas Klimas, one of his – one of his other fighters, you know, uh, Alexander Gavastik, who we talked about earlier, he, he puts uh, yeah. Donald Stevenson in a coma, um, you know, a few months ago. And uh, miraculously, Stevenson has made an incredible recovery, and I hope the same for um, Dadashev. But it's not always the case. You know, we've heard just the day before the fight, or actually the day of the fight, uh, in the Washington Post, there was an article on the front page of the sports section about Pritchard Cologne, who uh, is still, mm -hmm. you know, in a power chair and not not doing well at all from, you know, brain bleed in a fight that happened in 2015. So, 
hopefully Dadashev takes, you know, his recovery takes the same course as Stevenson as opposed to Cologne, but um, you never know. And also another one of Klimas' fighters, Sergey Kovalev, you know, he, he actually killed a man in the ring um, in 2011. So, uh, yeah, boxing uh, can be very dangerous at times. You know, these men risk their lives every single time they get in there and uh, really hope he makes a full recovery. Yep. Yeah, the scariest thing for me was just how competitive he was and the signs that he didn't show, uh, which is something that you could say about the Stevenson-Vosdick fight was that Stevenson hurt Vosdick right in the round prior to him getting stopped. Uh, you can kind of say the same thing for the Gerald McClellan uh, Nigel Ben fight. I mean, he showed more signs of attrition than uh, either Stevenson or Maxim Dadashev, but you know he was right up in, you know, right up, uh, very competitive in the fight and hurting Ben right until the very end. So yeah, we, we definitely need yeah. some very astute physicians and and referees and cornermen uh, to quickly identify when there is a problem and and react accordingly. Uh, although sometimes you just can't tell, you know? Yeah. Um, all credit to buddy. the science just isn't, no, keep going. I'm sorry. I was going to say all credit to buddy McGirt, you know, not every trainer would have, uh, pulled him out. You know, it was a championship title eliminator fight. His fighter was undefeated. Um, he didn't want to quit. You know, he kept saying, you know, let me go, you know, let me fight. Um, so all credit to buddy McGirt for putting his fighter safety first, as opposed to, you know, maybe sending him out there and hoping he got a lucky punch, you know, uh, Again, not not many fighters, not many trainers would have done that. And you know, again, he might have saved his life. Um, another fight that came to mind was you know, remember uh, Magomed Abduzalamov versus uh, yeah, oh, what was um uh, or Mike uh, Mike, Mike Perez. Gomez? No, Mike Perez. Yeah, yeah, Mike, yeah, yeah. Mike Perez. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it took place on a Gennady Golovkin undercard at Madison Square Garden, uh, 2013, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, same thing. You know, it was a credible, brutal fight. But he didn't really. He was in the fight the whole time, and he showed no signs of, uh, you know, any type of brain injury uh, outside of a normal fight. And uh, he's he's kind of in a very similar situation to Pritchard Cologne. Um, so yeah, you know, definitely trainers need to keep a closer eye on their fighters, um, and commissions need to do a better job to make sure they're they get the best care as soon as possible. Um, again, you know, all credit to Buddy McGirt. Um, I was just incredibly impressed with what he did. Um, you know, taking the long-term view as opposed to the short-term view, um, it's it's really remarkable. You know, I had a lot of respect for him as a fighter, as a, a fighter and a trainer before, and it just gone up. It just went up another level after uh, Friday night. Yeah, as you mentioned, might have saved the man's life. Uh, our hearts all go out to Maxim Dadashev, who's in critical condition right now, medically induced coma. Hopefully, he faces uh, a as speedy a recovery as he can. Uh, terrible situation for Dadashev and his family. Another black eye for the sport, but thus is the reality of boxing, one of the most brutal sports uh, in the world uh, right now. So, yeah, that just about wraps it up for the Fight City episode 27. I uh, want to take our hats off to heavyweight uh, Montreal heavyweight Oscar Rivas on all the behalf of the Fight City uh, he came up short against WBC number one contender Dillian White via 12-round decision, scored a knockdown, had plenty of moments throughout, but hope he doesn't get discouraged by the defeat and continues to develop as a heavyweight champion uh, contender. So 
Oscar Rivas, hope he does well in the future. That just about wraps it up for episode 27 of the Fight City. And uh, thanks, Seamus, for being on with us. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh, looking forward to uh, maybe doing this again, and I'm uh, looking forward to seeing it in future fights, Alden.